Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, June the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Later on, we'll be joined by our public affairs editor, Simon Carswell, and by Ben Nimmo of the Atlantic Council to discuss research showing evidence for the first time of Russian attempts to spread misinformation on Irish issues via Facebook. But first of all, Fia Kelly and Jennifer Bray of our political staff are here. Jennifer, you were at the exciting sounding National Economic Dialogue this morning. What did you hear there? Yeah, so um, uh, Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donoghue were at this event this morning. They were kind of outlining, or they were basically furthering what they previously said about the national, about the um, summary economic statement, talking about the two scenarios for the for the budget, the the first budget, which would obviously be in the event of a no-deal Brexit, and the second budget, which would be um, if the UK does manage to secure a deal. And they were outlining, Leo Varadkar in particular was very keen to stress that it's very difficult to uh, calibrate something like Brexit or the effect that it may have on the economy at this early stage. And even when we get as far as the budget in October, even at that point when it happens on October the 8th, it will still be very, very difficult to analyse the effect that it will have on the economy. Um, So they're kind of hedging their bets a little bit. Um, He was also talking about some of the external threats that Ireland faces, changes to global tax regimes, obviously our... um, reliance, you could say, or semi-reliance on what he calls volatile taxes. And obviously when, what he's talking about that, he's talking about corporation tax receipts. Um, and, and did and he respond to the recent criticism of the government's reliance on those those particular taxes? Not particularly. He said he would, you know, Ireland obviously would be, is very willing to look at ways in which to modernise our tax laws but other countries in the EU need to respect our 12.5% tax rate and they need to respect our tax sovereignty. So they're still sticking to that. And there's, you know, the, the government line is that it's it's transparent and it's within our gift to set our own taxes. So very much still sticking to that line. So we had some talk about two two different budget scenarios in Brexit, um, the external threats, like I mentioned. Um, and that was really the bones of it. And Pascal Donoghue will spend the day, as he said, locked into that room in Dublin Castle with various stakeholders to... And just in terms of, of sheer practicalities for you, Keir, the budget is due to be delivered in uh, early October. Um, it's quite possible we'll be in back in Brexit crisis mode at mm-hmm. that point, but it's certainly quite likely, very, li- say, yeah. very likely that, that, that matters will still be unclear. So legislatively, what happens? The minister presents the both budgets or this fork in the road budget, leaving open the possibility then of which route you take once you no, get into he, November, December? He, or he will present one budget which will be... They will make a call in September which they be, uh, about which scenario they believe will be the likeliest the month after. So in September they will decide, okay, we believe that no deal is more likely or deal is more likely at this point in time and they will have to proceed with the budget on that basis. Does but prudence not dictate but, that, that if there's any possibility then of uh, of a no-deal Brexit, and there almost certainly will be in mm. September, that they need to take, that that's the, the, that the, would, the road they need to take? That would suggest that is the road they need to take, but they say that they will draft a budget that will allow for both scenarios. So what Pascal Donoghue said yesterday is the budget they package will be 2.8 billion 
in either scenario. Uh, 2.1 billion of that is already committed, so you're looking at 700 million for new measures on budget day. The difference would be that if you are looking at a deal scenario, that the government would run a surplus next year of 0.4% of GDP. That's all going well with, uh, you know, the attendant risks of some concerns about overheating in the economy. But if there is a no deal, they will allow that surplus to swing to a deficit of a range between 0.5 and 1.5%. And bear in mind that every 0.1% on that is about 300 million euro. Mm -hmm. So you're allowing about a swing from a surplus of 1.2 to uh, a deficit of an extreme and 1.5 of about 6.5 billion, which give you a deficit of about 5 um, that is what they're doing. So they're building themselves in a cushion in a no-deal scenario to allow what are called these automatic stabilizers kick in to support the economy. And what are they? That is basically these usual counter-cyclical measures whereby you will be operating on the basis that you have less people in work. Uh, we heard yesterday a figure of 55,000 jobs at risk due to a no-deal Brexit. You therefore have less tax receipts coming in and you would need to pay out more welfare payments. So it offers that support and the government has also said that in that scenario that any discretionary spending they would have, so the 700 million and maybe more, um, would be directed at, or they indicated fairly clearly, that it would be directed at at-risk sectors of the economy to support those people who may lose their jobs. So in a no-deal scenario, you would be probably looking at any tax cuts and significant welfare rises being out the window. What you would be looking at is the money being used to support, say, agri-food businesses and other sectors of the economy. And just in terms of, let's say it's the, the other fork on the road, let's say uh, it's all sweetness and light and uh, Britain doesn't tumble out with no-deal at, at the end of October, where do these, they're not so much tax cuts as changes in the tax bans fit fit into this then? Because I'm an economic ignoramus, everybody who listens to this podcast probably knows that at this stage, but my understanding was that basic counter-cyclical theory means that you don't cut people's taxes when you're embarking on a, on a boom, which we almost are at this point. Yeah, exactly. And I think Pascal Donoghue this morning was pointing out that one of the the big measures that they will have is an investment or ramping up investment in capital expenditure. He was talking in a region of, I think he said around 700 million, which is obviously a lot of money. And we saw yesterday in the Dáil, Leo Varadkar, basically indicating that the Fine Gael plan, which is always to cut, you know, the, the income tax uh, rates, uh, that that would be potentially put on the back burner, that they don't have the money to do that maybe in the time frame they would previously have indicated. So that would definitely feed into... So it's more likely to show up in a Fine Gael election manifesto next year then? Well, I think that's why you probably see in this budget, it'll be a budget unlike, well, obviously, for many, for the obvious reasons, ones that have gone before. What I mean is uh, many of the old tired rows will probably be done away with. So if we're heading towards a no-deal Brexit, which Leo Radker pointed out again this morning, that it's looking increasingly likely that we are, that row that we see every year between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, about a five euro increase to pensions and other welfare payments, that's likely to be shelved. And the the same yearly row about the rainy day fund, how much should go in, uh, when it should it go in, what should it be used for, also could be shelved if that money actually needs to be put into the economy and used on those contingency plans. So you would think in a way that you might see the putting aside of some of the old party politics in terms of the budgetary process, but of course that's just wishful thinking. Yeah, and I was wondering about that figure because obviously the only reason this government is still in existence and the only reason Pascal Donoghue will be presenting a government, uh, budget on behalf of this government uh, is because of Fianna Fáil and the reason why Fianna, Gaul, Fianna Fáil are uh, supporting this government, they say, is because of the threat of Brexit. So how is Fianna Fáil going to play this over the next three months? Um they have said, yes, what they said yesterday is a couple of messages coming out clearly from Fianna Fáil in the last few days. One is political stability is needed in the time ahead in the case, i.e. 
there ain't going to be any election anytime soon. We are committed to passing a budget. But two, what Michael McGrath said yesterday as well, he said, uh, he admitted that the level of discretionary spending, if there is a no-deal Brexit, will be significantly reduced. And he said, under no circumstances will we, as in Fianna Fáil, put, the risk, put at risk the Irish economy and the public finances. In saying that, there was an interesting uh, exchange in the House last night. Uh, statements on the summer economic statement followed the publication of this document yesterday and all the finance spokespeople get up and have their speak. Um, yet last year, when this at this point in the cycle, uh, same pattern was followed. Pascal Tunu got up and said, I have X to spend, of which X is pretty committed, and we will do this on budget day. And Michael McGrath more or less got up and said, we agree with you, we agree that this is right. At this point in the cycle, added in a few caveats about criticising about health and housing. What he said last night was different. What Fianna Fáil are saying at the moment is they, they seem to be half accepting the figure of 2.8 billion but saying to Pascal Donoghue it is too early now to pin yourself to such an amount because you don't know what will happen later in the year and I thought it was also interesting as well that McGraw was quite blunt last night in outlining the Fianna Fáil point of view of services need to be protected at all uh, in every situation that we have as across health, health, health and social welfare health and the ones he mentioned last night specifically were health and home home help um, he also, I've also heard Fianna Fáil figures privately speak of the standard of living, i.e. that means you, if you're on social welfare payments, your standard of living will have to maintain with anybody else who is not on social welfare payments. So to me, it sounded like this is a newly confident Fianna Fáil who are possibly giving themselves some room to maybe have a row with Pascal Dunne who later in the year. I don't think anybody believes that this government will collapse over a budget if there's a no-deal Brexit, but Fianna Fáil may feel more confident this year to push the government to do things in the budget than it did last year. Bear in mind, this time last year, Leo Varadkar was riding high on the back of strong poll ratings after the referendum on the Eighth Amendment. Fianna Fáil was at a, a kind of a low point because it had been divided over that. Now we have Fianna Fáil invigorated after a good local election. Tables are turned. Tables are turned. They want to be seen to be pushing now. And bear in mind, this arrangement does not sit well with many in the Fianna Fáil party as a whole. They will want to see their party in getting some measures for their own in this budget. That could just be supports, extra supports for agriculture rather than anything else. It could be that type of thing. There's also a legitimate point, isn't there, that I mean, Michael McGrath I think, makes the point that you know last year the numbers did shift in advance of the budget and there was a lot of questions asked about where uh, Pascal Donoghue found that extra few hundred million down the back of the sofa Um, and so there's no reason to believe that something similar won't happen again this year. Absolutely. The situation is very different this year to last year. Obviously last year Brexit was something that was was constantly shifting deadlines and it was always something somewhat on the horizon but this is weeks away now so you would imagine that finding those extra hundred millions down the back of the couch wouldn't necessarily be a feature of this year's budget but then this is the government you know and they, they are still have an eye on the next election and I still have an eye on their own party fortunes. So, um, you know, the the thing for them, obviously, is that we're seeing a picture painted of two very different Ireland's in 2020. You know, one where we're, um, we've got a budget surplus of over a billion and another where we probably have to borrow billions. Um, and the effect that will have on the political system and on Fine Gael's own fortunes when you're talking about finding hundreds of millions etc will be really really interesting One other thing that's interesting even in the best case scenario a, a deal Brexit scenario we're talking about a discretionary spend of 700 million on the things we've just spoken about you know a bit of tax cuts a bit of welfare increases but that's still very tight because last year the corporation tax kitty has been raided around about a week before budget day beforehand Given that the government has been criticised so much on that front, 
you would find it hard to see them doing it again. To such an extent, the Department of Finance is very sore about that constant dipping into that pot, effectively to bail out the Department of Health. Revenue raisers last year were the VAT on the hospitality sector, raised a significant amount of money, basically more or less paid for their taxation package last year. The revenue raiser this year, the big one from what we know, will be the carbon tax. But the carbon tax is going to be ring-fenced to pay for carbon measures. So you can't go back into the pot. Or indeed into refunds or to refunds, So it can't go back into the 700 million. And in a situation where you have the Department of Health probably coming cap in hand looking for another 500 million, something's going to have to give here if they stick to their word and don't reach for that, reach for that last minute money on the back of the couch, as you said before. Either the Department of Health is going to have to be told, no, you're not getting what you're asking for this year, which people in government are saying they're really frustrated that the Department of Health doesn't seem to be getting that message now, or else you're going to have to bail them out again. But you're going to have to deal with a much limited uh, pool of cash to divvy around on discretionary spending. This all looks to me like trouble for Fine Gael, that it's hemmed in on both sides. On the one hand, it's its reputation or at least its own self, sense of self that it's competent in terms of running the economy is under threat because of over, overspends in health and elsewhere. On the other hand, they want to be able to go to the country with a kind of a classic Fine Gael type proposition, which would, include, uh, which would include tax cuts or tax changes of one sort or another. And meanwhile, Fianna Fáil are newly confident. Uh, do, you, do you get a sense of what the mood well, is I in think, Fine Gael? Fine Gael like, I think a tight budget would suit Fine Gael if they want to recover that sense of themselves as the managers of the public purse, if they manage to keep the reins on this. And I get the impression that many in Fine Gael would not be unhappy if they had a very, very tight budget. You know, barely inflation-linked welfare rises rather than your fiver. That is the issue of tax cuts. Taoiseach and uh, Pascal Dunne were quite clear on what they said yesterday. But I, from what I've been told, the view from the Taoiseach's department or from Taoiseach himself is... There's always a reason not to cut tax. It has to be done at some stage. So I think a tight budget may suit them if they're trying to recover their reputation. So so they can blame Boris Johnson, essentially. That Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donner who can say it's Boris Johnson who means it's his fault well, that you're not getting a, an increase in your social welfare well, this year. Well, they can, but whether that will wash or not is a, is a whole other thing. And I think um, the point that FIAC makes is really interesting in that if the the government does keep dipping into those corporation tax funds, which they don't want to do anymore, and Pascal Dunne was talking this morning about how, or Leo Varadkar actually, about how it's volatile and, and the government cannot be doing that anymore. And the Department of Health are constantly overspending and we've seen that there was a spike uh, in the month before last, I think it was, in relation to the spending in the department. The, the government doesn't have the money for that. So what will happen is, like Feig says, if they have to say no, that money is going to come from very... Uh, politically unpalatable places I'm talking like like the piece you had about a cut to home health hours hours anything like that would be very would be politically very bad for for Fine Gael. and you're right something does have to give whether it's you know health measures whether it's um, an over reliance on the corporation tax um, and yeah they are being hemmed in at, at all sides and you can really see a situation whereby the fortunes of the party could potentially dip significantly below where they are by the end of the year if there's a no deal, if the Department of Health continues the way it is and if the economy dips. We're seeing signs of strain at local level, particularly in Waterford this week, uh, around John DC, the, the Fine Gael TD there, and a sort of a mutiny really from, from his local party against him and a few other strains around the country too. Yeah, there's, there's real bad blood down that uh, part of the country for Fine Gael. There's a real bitter relationship between John DC and Party Coffee, who was a TD, lost his seat the last time, is now a senator, is hoping to get his seat back. I think that is, and a couple of local issues as well, you know, other people vying to get on tickets. It seems to be a very, very nasty pot down there. Um, 
it's a troubled spot in the country for Fine Gael. They have to sort that out before the next election. When there was a rush to get tickets finalised in November 2017, when, when it looked like we were going to the country, um, John DC didn't put his name forward for selection convention. Party Coffee was selected. And I think the working assumption in the party has been that John DC would not run. But that needs to be fixed before they go to the country, country again. So you have to have two candidates in Waterford for Fine Gael. Other parts of Ireland that in organisationally that we're worried would be Kerry. There's a bit of degree of concern about how well they are set up for election. But let's bear in mind, that's a five-seater. You're going to have two Healy Rays, a Fine Gael, a Fianna Fáil, and probably Sinn Féin. So it's not much change, but there is a concern. They need to get a few bits in order before an election and this is one of them anywhere else Dublin any, uh, any, do they need to recalibrate some of these, some couple, of these couple, couple, couple of constituencies in Cork where councillors who are on general election tickets or council candidates didn't even get elected also Dublin Fingal which is going to be a by-election uh, if there are to be by-elections in November James Riley is selected as the Dáil candidate out there to run alongside Alan Farrell Le- murmurings of unhappiness about whether he will be the p- ideal candidate for them in a by-election or indeed a general election there was a rumour that went around Leinster House last week um, that Regina Doherty's cousin was being lined up to contest the by-election selection convention. I think, I'd, from what I've heard, John and James Riley was too happy with that. But those issues are now being worked through in Fine Gael. Like Pascal Donoghue and Tom Curran uh, were sitting down with people who were on general election tickets last week and kind of asking them how they're getting on. Uh, at, like you know, Maybe I heard one person met with them and came away reflecting on whether they should actually run the general election or not. So they're getting into the weeds of the organisation now. We'll leave it there. There should be plenty more of that over the next few months. Fiak and Jen, thanks very much for joining us. You're listening to the Irish Times. The use of social networks by states to spread fake news is not new at all these days, but this week we heard for the first time about one such attempt targeting Northern Ireland. Simon Carswell wrote the story and he joins me now. Simon, tell us about the background to this and how has this news come to light? Well, it's come to light in the background investigation by a group called the Digital Forensic Research Laboratory, which is part of the Washington-based think tank known as the Atlantic Council. And they found that Ireland was one of several Western countries targeted by a Russian-based information operation. And what they were doing was using fake accounts and dozens of online platforms to spread news. And this appeared to be designed to stoke racial, religious or political hatred, and particularly in relation to Northern Ireland. The operation, we know, came to light after Facebook took down 16 fake accounts in May, after what the social network found was coordinated inauthentic behaviour in a campaign emanating from Russia. Now, the social network uh, disabled the accounts because coordinated activity by people using fake accounts to misrepresent themselves, that's against their policies, the breach of their policies, rather than the fake content itself. Mm -hmm. And the Atlantic Council's research centre found that the campaign was persistent, sophisticated and well-resourced and said that the likelihood is that this operation was run by a Russian intelligence agency. So what kind of news stories were these people creating? Well, quite a few of them and they kind of range in different topics. Uh, There was one about paint that painted Muslim immigrants in Germany in a bad light. It spread this virulently anti-immigration scare. Uh, and it was actually one of the rare stories that was picked up by anti-immigration media in, in, in Germany. Uh, there was a story around EU elections suggesting the European centrist parties should unite to destroy the far right. Uh, there was a suggestion, a story put around that the United States had staged Arme- Armenia's 2018 political revolution. An interesting one related to a meme which showed a forged tweet by Senator Marco Rubio, the Republican Senator 
senator from Florida accusing UK intelligence services of planning to use what's known as deep fakes, these fake videos, to support the Democrats during the 2018 US midterm election. So quite a different range of, of stories that were put around. And then closer to home, tell us about the Irish connection. Well, this is the really interesting part from our perspective. Facebook believes that this is the first time that Ireland has been targeted in a coordinated way by Russian actors. So what... Um, what, what, what came out of, of as a result of this investigation by the Digital Forensic Research Laboratory was they discovered a forged email purporting to show the DUP leader Arlene Foster supporting the EU's position on Brexit, which was completely at odds with what, um, what the DUP's position was at that time, which is the summer of 28. Uh, and so what was discovered was there was a pseudo-Irish Facebook account which was using a generic Irish name and they'd posted the screenshot of a fake email from Arlene Foster to the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, claiming that she found the EU's stance on Brexit more favourable than the one we received from the UK cabinet, which is obviously <laughs> nonsense. That would be news, all right. Yes. Yeah. And in the fake email, the DUP leader raised questions about Northern Ireland remaining within the EU. Uh, sorry, the UK, I should say. And the email was purportedly dated July 2018, and it appeared uh, was a very sensitive time for Brexit negotiations. So the claims were somewhat preposterous. So <laughs> They're pretty absurd. Like They're pretty out there, so like that, a claim like that, isn't it? It is, and I think that that's probably why it didn't go anywhere and it was spotted as being, oh, this is just nonsense that's uh, emanated from the far reaches of the internet. Michel Barnier is trying to present himself as someone who cares deeply uh, about Northern Ireland, and if that is the case, then he needs to hear the fact that we are part of the United Kingdom, that we will remain part of the United Kingdom constitutionally, politically and economically. And so therefore his proposal uh, of us being in a, an all-Ireland uh, regulatory scenario with a, a border down the Irish Sea simply does not work. Now, Darlene Foster, a slightly more uh, accurate reflection, I think, of her view and her party's view yeah. on where Brexit. And again, completely at odds with uh, this fake email, it's completely at odds with the reality and the position of the DP at the time. Now, to tell us more about this investigation, what it's uncovered and why Russia might be doing this in the first place, we're joined on the line by Ben Nimmo. Ben is Senior Fellow for Information Defence Digital Forensic Research Lab. Um, ben... We've never seen this stuff in Ireland before. We've seen it in other countries. Often it has a slightly absurd tinge to it to our eyes. It looks, you know, rather hard to believe. But we know from what we've seen in other political campaigns around the world in recent years that it can have a real impact. That's right. And one of the sad things about life on the Internet generally is that, that there's almost nothing which is too crazy for anyone to believe. Even some of the, the weird and wacky conspiracy theories will, will get a little bit of pickup and people will start sharing it. Um, so, so in a sense, there's nothing which is too crazy for an information operation. And the way this operation was being run were, was very, very cheap and very, very hard to disrupt because they were basically using an endless series of fake accounts on different platforms. And they'd use a different fake account for every single step of the operation. So even if somebody on one particular platform spots the bad stuff that's being done and takes down maybe half a dozen accounts – the operators can spin up another half dozen accounts in about three minutes and just keep on going. So, so there's no incentive to to make it a more polished product. It's it's just a question of throwing everything at the wall. And if something sticks, then then they've scored a point. So it's a bit like the same theory as spam email has always operated on, that it's very low cost and you can just keep doing it, as you say, and, and it doesn't matter if 99.5% of it never gets picked up by anybody because it's on the basis that some idiot somewhere will pick it up and then it'll then it'll transmit further. That's absolutely right. It's, it's effectively spam fake news. So in relate, how did you come across these particular story, this particular story, the, one, the ones relating to Ireland? 
So my team have a, a partnership with Facebook, and, and you can think of it as an, an information sharing partnership. Um, these days, when Facebook have a takedown that they're about to implement, they'll actually let us know a few hours or a few days in advance. And what they'll do is tell us, look, here are the names of some pages or occasionally some accounts which are about to go down. Have a look at them. Um, and we, we don't get any access to, to privileged data or the back end. But what we can do is go and look at those pages or accounts themselves and see what they're posting. And so in this case, they reached out to us and said, look, there's a little cluster of, of fake accounts we've found um, that are doing coordinated inauthentic behavior. They're being run from Russia. Go and have a look. One of those accounts that we found was it, it, it had a, let's say it had given itself a kind of generic Irish identity. It had a, an, an Irish seeming name. It had an Irish flag. Um, there, it was only skin deep in terms of the identity, but it was posting all kinds of weird and wacky stories, um, including the ones you've mentioned. And, and as we started looking at these stories, we realized that the stuff that was on Facebook was, was the tiny tip of a really, really massive iceberg. And that what these accounts were doing was sharing fake stories, fake political stories and, and divisive content from all kinds of fringe websites from around the Internet. I mean, they, they, they were using posts in San Francisco and in Australia and Austria, uh, in Berlin. And they were always posting these fake stories, which were, if they had worked, they would have spark division between different countries or, or, or inside different countries. So, so there was a story that was meant to get the Americans riled up against the British. There was a story that was meant to get the Poles riled up against the Germans. This kind of sort of diplomatic interference, if you like. Um, and in there, there was a cluster of three stories that we saw, saw that were focused on, on Northern Ireland, um, partly to do with um, sectarianism, partly to do with Brexit. But they were all the, this classic trying to stir up division within communities and, and then just to see what would happen. And Simon, we mentioned the Arlene Foster one. What, what were the other stories? The other stories related to the real IRA. Um, uh, there was one suggestion that uh, the former British sec uh, Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, said that the IRA helped in the assassination, attempted assassination of Russian spy Sergei Skripal. And the other one was that the real IRA were recruiting Islamist fighters, which again are both pretty wild uh, stories to come out and clearly fake. And, I mean, obviously, you, you put this to the Russian embassy. Yeah, um, I wanted to get their response uh, to, uh, to, these, to this research, to these stories. And they came back and said the investigative article by DFR Lab was absolutely false. They said it's a complete fake, having nothing to do with reality. And as such, it does not deserve serious comment. And they themselves have pointed to the lengths that Western disinformation operatives would go to to discredit Russia. And Ben, if I could just put that to you then, what, what's the basis of your uh, assertion of direct Russian involvement in this? There are a couple of angles to this. I mean, first of all, we have the, the statement from Facebook itself that this activity was emanating from Russia. Now, Facebook haven't published the exact evidence, but the kind of thing that they can look at in general is IP addresses, phone numbers, patterns of behavior. So if Facebook says that something is coming from Russia, that's already a pretty good indication that it's genuinely coming from Russia. And then what we did on top of that was a, a language analysis and a, a content analysis. And if you look at this operation writ large, it started in early 2014. Start, it, the, the very first accounts were posting in Russian and they were posting about Ukraine. So you've already got a good indicator there. Um, a lot of their content in English included 
classic grammatical errors that we see in Russian speakers who are, who are good at English, but not quite good enough. Um, so, for example, the Russian language doesn't have the words a and the. They just don't exist in Russian grammar. And repeatedly through the years, we've seen Russian operatives slipping up over the use of, of the and a. Um, so, so there was one classic quote from, from one story where the, the operation was claiming that the U.S. was going to launch a false flag chemical attack in Venezuela. Uh, and the line was, current situation is developing against our plan to overthrow regime of, of tyrant Maduro. And you just think, you, you've never heard of the word the, have you, in that sentence? Um, so, so, so there were there, there were classic language errors like that, which which are not just bad English, but they are bad English that are characteristic of Russian speakers trying to speak English. And th- th- this and isn't terribly sophisticated stuff, is it? I mean, this is the kind of thing. I mean, I'm familiar with it as well with Twitter bots, you know, pr- pr- purporting to be you know Brexiteers from somewhere in the southeast of England, and clearly by the language they're using, they're not. So, we've, we've, a lot of us have seen this kind of stuff. It's all over the place, all over the internet these days, isn't it? That's right. Um, I mean, so we found the English language content going back to 2016. Um, this, this was a big operation. So the Russian language stuff started in 2014. We know that the English goes back as far as 2016. We suspect it goes back before then, but, but we're still digging to find it. Um, the operation was running in at least six different languages and probably nine. Um, and in every single language that we've checked, it was... It was clearly not written by a native speaker, but it clearly wasn't done with Google Translate. You actually had linguists involved in this. And so if you look at the kind of scale of operation that you're dealing with there, that that's not an amateur operation. That's not a couple of guys doing this for the lols. That's a big and serious operation with, with access to linguists in nine different languages. And then the, the unique thing about this operation was that they were absolutely obsessed with secrecy. Normally, when you're running a social media operation, what you'll do or what what bad actors will do um, is they'll try and run up maybe a dozen accounts and they'll use them repeatedly. Right. They'll they'll try and build up a persona for them. They'll try and build up an audience because that's the way that social media work. You know, I know that the hardest part is getting your first follower. The way this operation was running, they were always chasing the first follower because every single thing they did was with with a newborn account. And that's just not the way you're going to see a social media operation working, but it's very much the way you're likely to see an intelligence operation working. So in terms of the Russian attribution, you know, we've got the context. They were posting about Ukraine and Armenia and Azerbaijan. They were posting a lot in Russian about Ukraine. The English language was flavored with Russian. And we have Facebook saying, we've traced this to Russia. So you've got all those different angles pointing back the same way. And then just the sheer scale of the operation and the length it lasted indicate that this is this is a serious operation this is this is a big gig this is not just a couple of guys in their back room and the obsession with secrecy is one that i've never seen before to this extent in any operation and that suggests it can't conclusively prove but it suggests that the guys who are doing this are intelligence operatives who frankly aren't very comfortable on social media and aren't very good at social media Mm, that's it. That, that's interesting. Now, as Simon says, the Russian embassy here in Dublin uh, strongly rejected the accusations, said they were entirely without, you know, without foundation. And looking at various responses to to the work of the Atlantic Council from from Russian sources, for example, Russia Today, the the, the broadcaster, I've seen them, you know, cast aspersions on on your objectivity and independence as an organisation, the Atlantic Council, because it is it is uh, funded to some extent, as as the name indicates, is it not by NATO? Um, to be honest, I don't even have a full list of our funders. I mean, the, the Atlantic Council has been going for 
about 60 years and it's, it's it's transparent in its funding so you can actually see the full list on our website i, I don't honestly carry it around um and you're absolutely right so the, the the russian government has attacked us repeatedly has attacked me repeatedly rt actually voted me the world's top russophobe last year um congratulations so thank you i mean it's you know it's a badge of honor so something that you always that we've often seen with with Russian communications is that there are four things they'll do if they get criticized and you can think of it as the four Ds it's dismiss distort distract and dismay so they'll dismiss they'll attack the witness distort they'll twist the facts distract they'll accuse you of the same thing and dismay they'll tell you if you keep doing this the world will come to an end and and we've been on the end of that tactic repeatedly but the way we work is open source. So actually, the report is published in two different places. And we've made it so that everything is hyperlinked and everything is archived. And the whole point is that we know there will be people out there who don't want to believe us. And there will always be people who challenge our credibility. So what we've done is put all the evidence out there. You can actually read that whole report. You can click on every single link. And then you can make your own minds up. What we found is evidence of a very large and very repetitive operation the language cues are in there. Everything that we've got is in there. Have a look and make up your own minds. I would love to know if the Russian embassy have actually read our report. From the way they're commenting, it sounds like they haven't. And it sounds like what they're saying is don't even go and read the report. Don't even bother. If they are so certain of their truth, why don't they want people to read the report? Simon, you've you've read it. Uh, give me your analysis of it. Yeah, I think it's a very solid piece of work. Um, I think the fact that, yes, there are some questions that could be asked because of the Atlantic Council's involvement. I had looked through at some of the contributors to the Atlantic Council who funds it. Uh, among them are U.S. State Department, U.S. Defense Department, British Foreign Office, um, and also, actually, interestingly, Facebook and Twitter. So I think it is a solid piece of research, definitely. Uh, it does, unfortunately, leave... Uh, the research open to some uh, uh, attack because of the, the the funding of of the Atlantic Council, but saying that uh, I would hope it wouldn't take away from the actual uh, merit of the research that's been done. Because the argument would be that essentially we're in a new Cold War now, and there are information wars, as we know from the stuff we've been seeing in the United States in particular over the last couple of years or so. An information war based on internet technologies and social media forms a large part of that, probably on both sides. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it described as not a Cold War, but a hot piece. And I think it's a really interesting way of putting it because in this era, this internet age that we're living in, when so much information is flying about, uh, it's put out there really quickly. And, and as Ben and his team's research has shown, with the single-use accounts or burner accounts, shows just the lengths that some of these operatives go to to take advantage of media and information manipulation. And we've seen the effect it has on political campaigns. We've seen what happened in the 2016 election in the US and the ability of the Russians to use uh, information. For example, the, uh, the famous troll farm and factory that was set up in St. Petersburg that was running and putting out fake information, which had an effect. You had, the, you had this rally being organized in Charlotte um, in October 2016, which was ostensibly against police violence. And it was held in the name of Black, um, um, Black Lives Matter US. And uh, the entire operation seems to have been directed by St. Petersburg. So it has an effect. And you've seen what it's done to um, how it's how it's roiled the, uh, internally within the US uh, and left uh, Trump, Donald Trump, even questioning his own uh, intelligence agencies uh, at that famous summit with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. Um, ben, you're working obviously closely with Facebook on this. Do you, in your experience, is Facebook getting better at spotting this kind of activity earlier? 
Yes, they are. Um, I mean, admittedly, it's from a very low base, right? If you think back to 2016, you could be working in the troll farm in St. Petersburg and you could buy American political ads and pay for them in Russian rubles and nobody would think this is weird. Um, so that, you know, there's been a long way that they've had to come. But they are getting, you know, they're getting much better. And, and frankly, my sense is that Facebook have really been stung by what happened in 2016. And and it's partly a point of professional pride. They do not want to be rolled like that again. And so you have inside Facebook a team of people who are actively going out and hunting for this stuff. You know, and it's to Facebook's credit that we found this particular operation in the first place, right? The, the, the clue that my team got was Facebook saying, we found 16 accounts. Now, we then did the research to find the rest of the iceberg underneath that. But these guys were trying really, really hard to hide. They were really pushing the operational secrecy. And yet they were still found. So, so that, that's a positive development. My big concern is that actually, you know, there's been a lot of report, reporting on, on the Russian operations, the Iranian operations that have been going on. And my big concern is that we're actually starting to see people in the West who are trying to do the same thing. So we're not now just looking at foreign interference in domestic, in domestic let's say, elections. We're going to see domestic actors trying to copy the Russians who were trying to copy domestic actors in the first place. And we're just going to see this proliferation of, of operations of this type. That really worries me. I think one of the interesting aspects of this research as well is is that the focus on Ireland and Northern Ireland and Anglo-Irish relations for the first time, if the Russian policy of attacking multilateralism, breaking up alliances, taking on Western democracies and some of these institutions that are on their doorstep, the likes of NATO, the European Union, even the United Kingdom, it shows that, uh, yes, this is another front that's being opened up in this um, disinformation war that's coming out of Russia. And uh, chatting to Ben when I was putting this story together, it was interesting to hear his own views that, well, you know, why wouldn't they uh, put the finger in the wound, as he said, um, when it comes to Brexit? Because Brexit is a dream for the Russians. It's leading to divisions between Ireland and the UK, between the UK and Europe, divisions within the UK and divisions within Ireland. So why not stir that toxic political stew? It just makes absolute sense that they would target it. And I guess the surprise for me was that we hadn't been targeted earlier. And there are political parties, large political parties, and certainly in other European countries that have close links um, with Moscow. Um, the uh, Marine Le Pen in France, for example, Salvini in Italy, they both have a more pro-Russian position, posture than, uh, than, than other parties in those countries. So there are potential wins there, as well as just weakening its, their opponents actually uh, supporting their, their supporters. Yeah, and I think, like you said at the outset, like that this is very similar to spam. Is you only need one win in a way. You know, you only need one successful piece of information to cause an awful lot of trouble online. It's the way the internet works at the moment, unfortunately, uh, and that can spread very, very quickly, and it can be very, very dangerous. I think the fact that the false, fake news stories they were putting out about Ireland was so preposterous and so wild in some of the claims. Is it's a good thing in that that they didn't uh, take off, but it shows that they may not they may try again because because the thing about this and the thing about social media is these things are only really going to have an effect if they're amplified by people in the domestic market where they're trying to have an effect. If you're just setting up burner accounts and they're there for a few weeks and then they just disappear because nobody paid any attention to them, well, the tree has fallen in the forest, but there was nobody there to hear it. Exactly. I think at the end of the day, they want to try and get it amplified and get it into mainstream media. You know, the example of painting Muslim immigrants in a bad light in Germany was the one piece of information that seems to have actually made something of the mainstream, although it be at the anti-immigrant media mainstream. So, um, yeah, I, I think it is a concern 
that they could do this again, they could learn from their mistakes and try more effectively. So Ben, obviously, you know, the, the key players in this as we speak at the moment are the social media platforms, particularly Facebook, which you referred to. Then there's there's third party actors like your like yourself, and then there's the there's the bad actors of various sorts, um, whether they be in Russia or whether they be in Iran or elsewhere. The the missing piece, it seems to me, is uh government, which in relation to issues of this sort in the past has had a significant role to play in terms of enacting, you know, laws that can prevent this kind of uh this kind of behaviour happening. What role does government have here? There is a role for government, because, but but it's pretty limited, um, partly because lying is not actually illegal. Um, there, there is no law against posting falsehoods online. Um, if there were, how many politicians would be in jail? So uh, there's not much governments can do. And I would get very, very scared if anybody said we should get government to actually regulate what people are posting, because that's what the Soviet Union tried to do. Um, so they ha- governments have to tread really carefully in this space. But what they can do and what would be very useful to do would be to set clear rules for the platforms so that there's actually legal definitions of what's allowed online and what isn't. Just as one example, at the moment, it will vary from platform to platform whether you're allowed to conduct targeted harassment and what targeted harassment actually is. And and everybody in my space has been subject to targeted harassment, right? You know, we we get threats, we get death threats, we get trolled, you get troll bombings. It's just part of the job. But depending on what platform you're on, the rules and how that's defined are actually different, which makes it really hard for the platforms to then work out a common approach to something as, as on the face of it, something as obvious as hate mobbing. And so if the, it, particularly on the European level, if the EU governments could sit down and say, right, here are clear rules that all the platforms have to follow on the kind of behavior that's allowed online, at least that can be a start. And at least that would allow the researchers to do their job in a little bit more peace and quiet. But there's nothing that can be done about the kind of the targeted misinformation campaigns, intervention in elections with misinformation, nothing that could be done beyond the sort of activity that you're involved in with the platforms yourself. Nothing directly because you don't want governments starting to comment on or interfere in what's going on online. It's, it's not a government's role. Um, they, there are things they can do to to promote other groups doing it, whether that be through sponsorship or through education. They can certainly do a lot to teach individuals how you spot a fake account, how do you spot a bot, how do you spot a fake story. Um, there are things that governments can do in the in the education space, but in general, I'm always wary of giving a government and particularly a politician the right to say what's fake online and what's true, because that way madness lies. And finally, given your experience with other countries, and now you've seen a number of these instances in Ireland, can we expect to see more? I think we'd be very unwise to suspect that this is over. Um, We know that this operation is still ongoing. I I found a story of theirs targeting Turkey at the weekend. So it's still out there. It's a very cheap way to operate. It's a very low cost thing for them to do. And as long as the political motivation is there, this stuff's going to keep on coming. Ben Nemo, thanks very much for joining us. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks again to Simon and to Ben and to Jennifer and Fiek for joining us earlier. Thanks, as always, to our producer Jennifer Ryan and our engineer JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.